Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. We're continuing with the discussion of the importance of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible for the ultimate emergence of apocalypticism in later centuries. Now we turn to Zechariah and a section of Isaiah. Let's move ahead to another passage that illustrates some of the seeds of apocalypticism. Ezekiel, as I mentioned, was an exilic prophet. His oracles are mostly from the 580s and 570s BCE while in exile. Zechariah chapters 1 to 8 is from the period of the return to Israel. Remember that Persia becomes the dominant power and allows the return of people back to the countries from which they came and that the Judeans in exile, many of them, return to Israel and actually try and reestablish a new society and try and begin to set up a new structure for Judea in the southern part of Israel, centered around Jerusalem, and also begin to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem itself, so that this will be the second temple. This is the period that Zechariah chapters 1 to 8 is written in. In fact, we can be more precise. It seems that he's writing in the period from 520 BCE to 518 BCE, at least that he's claiming to have received these messages from Yahweh, that he's then giving to the people. Already the foundations for the temple have been built at the time Zechariah is writing. However, there's been a stall, it seems, in the building of the temple. There are several things in Zechariah 1 to 8 that I want to point you to. We don't have time to deal with everything, as you can imagine. In terms of the form of the literature here, there's something very important about Zechariah that's not characteristic of every other prophet in the Hebrew Bible that does pop up sometimes, namely the focus on visions. Many of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible are focused on the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. This is what Yahweh says to the people. And then something that Yahweh says. But what we saw in Ezekiel and what we see even more prevalent in Zechariah as an emerging element in the literary genre of these prophets is the vision taking a more prominent role than it had previously had within the prophets. In fact, Zechariah chapters 1 to 6 is a series of visions that the prophet is given. That this is the mode, mode that Yahweh uses to communicate what he wants to tell the people through the prophet in the form of visions. This is also very important to the genre of literature of Apocalypse, as you already know from my brief description of it a couple weeks ago. Apocalypse as a genre is a first-person visionary account. The content of the visionary account is what distinguishes it from things like Zechariah. The content of the visionary account when we talk about Apocalypse as a genre is the end times and the secrets of the universe and how God runs the whole universe. Here, the visions and the form of the literature is very important for understanding the development later on. However, the content of these visions is not such that we could categorize Zechariah chapters 1 to 6 as an example of an apocalypse in terms of genre, in the way that we can categorize the latter part of Daniel in that way. So nonetheless, it's important for the development of the genre of apocalypse, even though it's not an example of an apocalypse. So we have a series of visions here, a vision of God's horsemen. I saw a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? 
Zechariah says, to an angel. This is another important generic element in Zechariah that comes to play a dominant role within the genre of the apocalypse, namely the presence of an angel who explains the vision. Not only are visions playing more of a prevalent role here, but there's the idea of an angel, a messenger of God, who is there to explain to the visionary, to explain to the prophet what the vision means. That doesn't mean that we as readers now can understand quite what the visions mean always. And Zechariah's visions are particularly mysterious uh, for historians to try and sort out what the visions are supposed to be referring to. But anyhow, we have here the angel explaining to Zechariah. The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what these horses are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, They are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth, etc. So it goes into some detail. It's not clear exactly what this vision means. But what I'm pointing out to you now is the prevalence of visions and the idea of a presence of an angel who explains to the visionary what this means. This becomes very important in the apocalyptic genre. The next vision is of four horns and four smiths. Again, a bit ambiguous as to what it's being referred to. Then a wall of fire in chapter 2. Let me draw your attention to chapter 3, which has an important element that I need to explain. This is one of the occurrences of the word Satan in the Hebrew Bible. It's important not to project back into Zechariah and other occurrences of Satan in the Hebrew Bible. The later developed notion of a cosmic force of evil, a personified evil figure, Satan, who opposes God. It's important not to project that back. This is a place where Zechariah is different than the later apocalyptic worldview. He has Hasatan, the Satan. What does Satan mean in Hebrew? It means an accuser, an adversary, an opponent, almost like an opponent at law, a prosecutor that stops you from achieving what you're trying to do. And that is the sort of figure that Hasatan is here. Unfortunately, in many translations, they still just leave it as translated as Satan, but they put a footnote as to what it really should be translated as, the accuser in this translation here, the adversary, far better translation, rather than leaving the capitalized Satan there as though it's a, a personified evil figure. It is not. We do not have Satan as a personified evil, evil figure in the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, and it's a characteristic of the apocalyptic worldview that we first see fully emerging in 200 BCE, but that obviously developed in centuries before it without us necessarily having clear evidence of it. So here we have in chapter 3 of Zechariah, Then the angel showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of Yahweh, and the adversary, an angelic figure, standing at his right hand to accuse him. He's acting as the prosecutor at law here, trying to establish that Joshua shouldn't be the high priest, with the other angel arguing that Joshua should be the high priest. And the overall message that Zechariah gets here and that wants to communicate to the people is that Joshua, an actual figure in his time period here, should indeed be the high priest in the newly established temple that is just being built at the time that Zechariah is writing. What's interesting here in chapter 3, however, is that we have seemingly two figures alluded to. We have Joshua the high priest, and we have another figure called the branch. 
The branch is often used in the Hebrew Bible as a term in reference to a king, to an anointed king, who will uh, rule over the people on behalf of God. And it seems that the branch in Zechariah likewise refers to that. It seemed that Zechariah in his time, in the 520 to 518 BCE, when they're reconstructing the Judean society, when they're building the temple and just starting to get back to that and trying to establish how this will be organized, Zechariah looks forward to the establishment of a high priest and of a king. And he has particular people in mind, Joshua and Zerubbabel, it seems. However, the uh, version we have of Zechariah, as it appears in the Bible, seems to have been edited subsequent to this, and it obscures the focus on Zerubbabel, primarily because Zerubbabel didn't end up becoming king, whereas Joshua, it seems, did end up becoming high priest. So the prophecy of Zerubbabel being the king of the new nation of Israel did not come to fruition. And therefore, uh, it was not a fulfilled prophecy, let's put it, uh, in the eyes of subsequent editors of Zechariah. That's enough to say about the first eight chapters of Zechariah for now, for our purposes. What I want you to do now is to move ahead to a later portion of Zechariah. Scholars generally agree that chapters 9 to 14 of Zechariah, even some ancient authors recognize this, that chapters 9 to 14 of Zechariah date from a later period, or, or at least are by a different author, than chapters 1 to 8. Scholars now place this often in the 400s BCE, so later than Zechariah chapter 1 to 8. So we're getting closer to the period of the emergence of apocalypticism as we see it in 200 BCE. Interestingly enough, it's within chapters 9 to 14 of Zechariah that we have an emphasis on that day again. And there's a little bit more spelling out of that day in a way that helps us understand the development that would end up becoming apocalypticism later on. Take a look, especially in the last couple chapters of Zechariah, chapters 12 to 14. Here again, it's the day of the Lord that's being talked about. It's an oracle from God. The word of the Lord, Yahweh, concerning Israel. Thus says Yahweh, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the human spirit within. It then goes on that Yahweh's talking about that day. What will happen on that day? On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it shall grievously hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth shall come together against it. So we once again have a prophet envisioning a time when the restored Israel, remember the Zechariah is living in the time where it, they're beginning to restore Israel, that they're back in the land, that they're building the temple, that they're trying to establish a society. But nonetheless, this author in the 400s BC still looks forward to a time when other foreign nations will come against Israel once again. So it's a battle again is the focus of that day. It's a battle between foreign nations and the nation of Israel, Yahweh's nation. What will Yahweh do on that day when these nations come against Israel? Look at verses 6 and following of chapter 12. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot on a pile of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So this idea of the people of Judah with the help of God, destroying and setting back the nations that come against it. 
is the theme of that day in Zechariah. It's not an end-time cosmic battle on the par with the apocalyptic end-time battle between God and Satan, ending in the establishment of a new creation, is it? But nonetheless, we're beginning to see developments in the ideas of that day that will be important to that day within apocalypticism. Look at some more elements of that day that relate to this very issue of we're heading towards apocalypticism. On that day, I will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that when they look on the one whom they have pierced, we're not sure of who this figure is, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns over a child. Further on, chapter 13. On that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, says Yahweh of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more and also I will remove from the land the prophets, presumably false prophets, and the unclean spirit. Here we have the idea of Yahweh setting back the foreign nations, cleansing Israel, and clearing is cleansing Israel particularly of polytheism, of the worship of other gods beyond Yahweh, and that the Yahweh alone camp, the triumphant camp in this situation, that Yahweh alone will be worshipped, and all other gods will be cleared and cleaned out of Israel. So that is what happens on that day within this section of Zechariah. Look ahead now to chapter 14 of Zechariah. It's unclear as to whether these different oracles in Zechariah 9 to 14 would have been written all together or whether or not they're written separately and have different authors even potentially uh, from one another. But take a look at chapter 14 where we have that day and the battle against the nations coming up again. See, a day is coming for Yahweh when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. This is cosmic in its proportions here, this battle. This is heading towards apocalypticism. Yahweh standing with his feet on Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall withdraw northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee by the valley of Yahweh's mountain, for the valley between the mountains shall reach to Azel, and you will shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then Yahweh, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. This is a major intervention of God here, with cosmic sort of implications. Take a look a little bit later. We notice that in Ezekiel, there was a looking forward to the restoration of Israel under a king like David. In Zechariah, it seems that the author of Zechariah 1-8 to looked forward in this restored Israel and the return from uh, Babylonia, looked forward to a temple being set up with a high priest and a king being established. Most likely Zechariah thought Zerubbabel should be that king. So human kings over Israel were in mind in those prophetic writings. 
Here in Zechariah chapter 14, there's an emphasis on Yahweh as king. After this battle, this cosmic battle against the nations, setting back the nations, Yahweh will become king over all the earth. On that day, Yahweh will be one and his name one. We then find out later that the nations that have been set back are not utterly destroyed. Many of them are. However, there's this notion of the in that day, when Yahweh sets back the nations, when Yahweh reestablishes the strength of Israel and becomes fully king over Israel, something else will happen with the nations that we should note here because it becomes important later on in apocalyptic literature. Take a look at chapter 14, verses 16 and following. There's a plague that has just been described back in verse 12. This shall be the plague with which Yahweh will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. So it's part of the judgment of the nations that have attacked Jerusalem. Their flesh shall rot while they are still on their feet. Their eyes shall rot in their sockets and their tongues shall rot in their mouths. Goes on to describe that further. But take a look of this judgment ends with an explanation of some of the nations the surviving members of those nations that weren't judged in this way have a role to play in the establishment of God's kingdom here. Then all who survive of the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to keep the festival of booths, celebration of the uh, freedom from slavery in Egypt. If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain upon them. So there's this idea of some among the nations other than Israel, some Gentiles, will recognize and begin to worship Yahweh as king within this newly established Israel under the kingship of Yahweh himself. So each of the prophets have a different way of explaining that day, don't they? Each of them have different understandings of what who will be king over God's kingdom in the restoration of Israel that they all imagine. However, they share in common this idea of a restored Israel, this idea of a newly established Israel that will be protected by God in a particular way and will not be ultimately destroyed in the way that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians previously or in the way that the northern kingdom was attacked by the Assyrians in, the, in previous centuries. Instead, a restored kingdom that God will protect in a special way. We're also seeing the seeds, though, here, especially in the latest material in Zechariah, of apocalypticism with the sort of cosmic proportions of this battle against the nations. Let's turn, finally, to one last passage, and that is Isaiah chapters 24 to 27. We can't do justice to any of these prophets we're looking at today. We're not trying to cover all, all the ground here. We're instead highlighting some of the elements, some of the themes in the prophets, and some of the generic aspects of the prophetic writings that come to play a role in apocalypticism. Isaiah chapters 24 to 27 is considered a separate writing from the writing around it. It's considered an interpolation of a prophetic writing within the middle of Isaiah here. We can't go into the details of why, but take a look at that passage and you might notice the continuity of the material around it if you remove chapters 24 to 27 and the discontinuity if you leave chapters 24 to 27 of Isaiah in there. 
Most scholars date chapters 24 to 27 of Isaiah to the period approximately 540 BCE, the later exilic period, to 425 BCE, so the post-exilic period, the return to Jerusalem. The same period, in other words, that we were seeing in the later part, uh, especially in the later portions of Zechariah. What's interesting here in chapters 24 to 27 is the major intervention of God that is described in the oracle that is uh, expressed. And that this major intervention of God has led some scholars to call this the Isaiah Apocalypse. Now we need to be careful about that. This is not an apocalypse in terms of genre in the way that we've described it a couple weeks ago. And we'll soon learn what an apocalypse and genre is as we proceed. It's not an apocalypse in terms of genre. It does have elements in it, just like we've noticed in Ezekiel and in Zechariah, that themes and elements that later come to play an important part in apocalypticism. Chapter 24 begins by outlining what Yahweh is about to do. Now Yahweh is about to lay waste the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. God's about to intervene in a very cataclysmic way, in a way that will affect all of nature in the way that it's being described here. There's some cosmic proportions to God's intervention here that are important to notice. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of earth, in verse 17. Whoever flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and whoever climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open, and the foundations of the earth tremble. Look ahead a couple more verses here. Still in chapter 24, especially from verse 21 to 23, I want to highlight an element here that later gets developed in a particular way within apocalyptic literature. On that day, so we're back to that day here. In this particular prophet, there's that same sort of way of speaking of God's intervention on a particular time. On that day, Yahweh will punish the host of hev in heaven and on earth the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Yahweh of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and before his elders he will manifest his glory. Here we have a vision of that day involving the establishment of Yahweh as king, similar to the idea of Yahweh as king we encountered in Zechariah, for example. We don't have a Davidic king here being referred to, instead Yahweh himself being established as king. But what's interesting to note here that gets developed perhaps through the influence of this passage later, especially in 1st Enoch, is this idea of that at some future day, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven, angelic figures, and earthly kings by imprisoning them in a pit and shutting them up in a pit. This idea is quite closely related, though developed in a different way and transformed with Enoch in 1st Enoch, the earliest part of 1st Enoch's idea of God punishing the rebel angels by imprisoning them. And we'll soon get to that in a couple weeks when we turn to 1st Enoch. But I wanted to at least note this passage to you so that later on you see a seed, you could say, of an element of the apocalyptic worldview later on. This, though, I do not see as fallen angels in an evil sense of a 
allied with Satan or anything like that. Satan does not appear as a personified evil figure in Isaiah in the same way that it did not appear in Zechariah and did not appear in Ezekiel. That's something that's missing in the prophets, but that is central to the apocalyptic writings. Let's look back here to Isaiah, the next chapter. Another thing that comes up in this description of what God is going to do in this final intervention is the destruction of death. Take a look at chapter 25, verses 6 and following. Yahweh will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death, mot in Hebrew, forever. Now remember that we've already talked about a couple weeks ago the combat myth, and that the Canaanite version of the combat myth, one of the versions, is Baal defeating Mot, Baal defeating death. Here we have what seems to be a reworking, or at least a, an allusion to that sort of mythology in reference to Yahweh defeating death, defeating Mot. You can imagine, though, that this is could be a tr interpreted by later authors, and is interpreted by later authors, who have a notion of an afterlife, who have a notion of the resurrection of the dead as a reference to resurrection. However, within Isaiah itself, it does not clearly refer to a future resurrection or the defeat of death in the sense of the defeat of death through resurrecting human bodies at the end times. That does not seem to be the case here, but this does develop into that within apocalypticism. While we're on the issue of combat myth and how it links up to prophecy here and therefore plays a role in the development of apocalypticism later, take a look at the beginning of chapter 27 of this section of Isaiah. Once again, the combat myth is on the mind of this author here, this prophet here, when this author talks about God's major intervention at some future time on that day. Take a look at this very important phrase here at the beginning. On that day, Yahweh with his cruel and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will kill the dragon that is in the sea. Remember our earlier discussion in which we explained the combat myth, where the combat in the combat myth is something that has already taken place in the past. It's that Yahweh defeated Leviathan. And in some of the Psalms, the way the combat myth is used to, is to explain God's creation of the universe, creation of, of seas and of rivers. And that through slaying the sea monster, Leviathan, representative of the sea, God created the creation that we know around us. Here, though, the thing to note is it's not talking about something that happened in the past. This author of Isaiah is projecting into the future this cosmic combat between Yahweh and the monster Leviathan, between Yahweh representative of order and the sea as representative of chaos, and that this is projected into the future as well as having happened in the past. This is something that is important in understanding the development of apocalypticism. It's this projection of the combat between Yahweh and the monster that threatens the order of the universe into the future that is at the heart of the apocalyptic worldview as we see it later.
So this little snippet here of Isaiah is a very important for understanding the direction things are heading in some of the later prophets in the Hebrew Bible towards apocalypticism. It's not here yet, though. The full-blown apocalyptic worldview that we explained a couple lectures ago is not here yet. It is heading that way. That has been the point of our discussion today. And I hope that you've enjoyed the discussion of how the prophets are very important for understanding the continuity between what we have within Israelite culture beforehand, heading towards the emergence of apocalypticism in the post-exilic period. There is far more that could be said about the prophets, far more that could be said about how they're important for apocalypticism, but hopefully you've gotten the gist of the continuity that exists, both in terms of the form of the prophets, in terms of literature, and in terms of their content in leading into apocalyptic literature. However, at the same time, there are transformations of themes in the prophets that take place within apocalyptic literature that show us something new emerging, a new convergence, a new juxtaposition of themes, and a transformation of those themes in a way that focuses on some future cosmic intervention of God to destroy evil in, its, in a final way and establish an eternal kingdom with human beings being raised from the dead and playing a role in this final eternal kingdom. That is what the apocalyptic worldview is about. And that is the transformation. That is what is new in the later apocalyptic writings that is not fully present in that particular way within the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. So I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of the origins of apocalypticism. Now, finally, in the next discussion, we get to turn to apocalyptic literature itself and begin to learn what apocalypticism is more directly from the writings. In the Hebrew Bible, we'll be looking at the book of Daniel. The latter half of Daniel is our one of our earliest examples of apocalypse as a genre of literature. It dates most likely to 160s BCE. The following week, we'll look at 1st Enoch chapters 1 to 36 that most likely dates before Daniel, probably dates to around 200 BCE. I've chosen that order so that we begin with something you might know a little bit about before we turn to something you don't know much about. So come again, and I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of the prophets and their role in the development of apocalypticism.